talking about how to walk worthy of the calling with which we're called. And we're going to talk about a biblical method of change. Any of you ever need to change in your behavior? You've got things that you're working on still, I hope. Right? You know, we're all a work in progress, and we will be as long as we're on this life. We all have ways in which we need to change. We fall short of God's standard. Well, let's talk about that. And let's talk about some key principles of changing in a righteous and a biblical way. So we're going to look at a couple points this evening. We're going to look at the fact, first of all, that the Scriptures teach that there is a need for change. And when we talk about change, a big theological word that we might use for this is the idea of sanctification, and in particular, progressive sanctification. But we'll talk also about our position and the fact that we're sanctified in our position. But we're talking about change then, our need to grow, the need for change, for sanctification. Then we're going to talk about that there is hope for us to be able to change. And there's hope in the changing as God makes us more like Jesus Christ. Then we're going to move on from there. We're going to talk about the means of change. We're going to ask the question, where does God's grace fit into this and how does it fit with my responsibility? Then we're going to talk about a method of change, and we're going to talk about the scriptures teaching us that we've got to put off the old man and put on the new. Put off the old way of living and the old way of thinking and be rejuvenated in our thinking and in our hearts and in our minds. Well, first of all, let's look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's talk about the need for change. First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to consider several points here, but first of all, let's consider what the standard is. And the standard is perfection. That is the standard. Look at this, in First Peter chapter 1, and look at verse 15 and also verse 16. But as he who has called you is holy, we're called in Christ, Right? We're identified in Christ. We're in Him. As He who has called us is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. That means your conduct, your way of living. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So what's the standard? It's perfection. It's the very holiness of God Himself. So here's a question for us. Should we ever get loose and lax about sin in our lives? Should we ever treat sin like it's just not that big a deal? God forbid that we would ever do that. You know, I'm reminded so often of that great hymn by Thomas Kelly and that line, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, who may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, Tis the word the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. If we ever begin to get lax about sin, think about the cross. What is Christ doing on that cross if sin is no big deal? See, the standard is perfection, but it's a standard in this life that we strive for, but we're not going to attain, in my opinion. <laughs> 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, that's present tense, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, I like the words of George MacDonald. He said, 
What else but the ideal should the followers of the ideal strive for? What else but the ideal, the standard of living fully righteously for God, should the followers of the ideal, who is that? Christ. Should the followers of Christ strive for? We should not be lax regarding sin. But what's our attitude in all this? It's an attitude of hope. It's not an attitude of wait. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's an attitude of hope. Look at this in verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get the belt around your mind. Get things up and secure there in your minds. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is hope in the process of change. And hope in the scriptures isn't a, oh, well, I hope so. Oh, 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 I just hope that this... No, our hope is in the work of Christ Jesus, and that is a rock-solid hope. And this is even looking to the future there, the grace that's going to be brought when Christ comes back, and focusing in on that. But the attitude is hope, and it's also fear of the Lord. Look down at verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass this time of your sojourning here in fear. That's talking about in the fear of the Lord. And having a reverential awe, but also, as his child, a fear of his displeasure. We're going to talk about his fatherly displeasure, and that we can have him be displeased with us, even though our position is secure, if we choose to live rebelliously and live in sin. Okay, so the standard is perfection. The attitude, though, is one of hope. Because the surety is Christ Jesus. Because the victory is secure in Christ. Look there uh, at at verse 13 once again. Get up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a rock solid certainty. Christ is going to come back. And if you are his child, then you will not be condemned with the world. It will be a glorious time. When the Lord returns. The surety is Christ. Look at verses 18 through 21. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. See, the surety of our ability to change is in Christ Jesus and that we have that hope in him because he has accomplished the work of redemption and we're united with him so we have the ability then to change. Well, as we consider then further the hope that we have for change, let's consider that God is at work in us. He is at work. He has and He continues to enable us to change. He doesn't command us to change and then not 
give us an ability to be able to change for His glory. What does it say in the Scriptures? He who began the good work in you will be faithful to perform it until that day, right? He will continue to work in you if you are His child to give you the ability to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So He's working in us. From Philippians chapter 4 also, that passage there, that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and do of His good pleasure. He helps make us willing and He gives us the strength to be able to do what He wants us to do. Now that salvation there is not talking about justification, is it? It's not saying work out your own justification. We're going to talk about that. Because we're justified by grace through faith alone. But there's that process of sanctification that we have a part in by God's grace. So let's consider that in just a moment further. But, so thinking about this concept though of hope to be able to change. I want to really encourage you today. Don't take away your hope. If Believer, if you are in Christ Jesus, don't rob yourself of the hope of change by living based on a label. What do I mean by that? The label of personality, for instance. Don't rob yourself of the hope of being able to change and being able to grow by saying, oh, well, it's just my personality to be anxious and a worrier. You see, if, if it is just your personality and there's nothing you can do about that, there's no hope for change. There's no hope to become more like Christ Jesus in that respect. But the Scriptures teach us that we can put off anxiety and we can rest in God and have peace. So there is hope in that. So don't rob yourself of the hope by labeling yourself based on your personality or based on your genetics. Oh, well, you know, my parents were just that way and that's the way I am too and so I don't have anything I can do about that. Don't rob yourself of that hope to be able to change. You know, there's some people out there that even begin to rob themselves of the hope to change because they label themselves with a certain type of mental illness. And they say, this is just the way that I am. No, don't go there. Realize, believer, you are united in Christ. You have hope to change. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will give you grace and strength to be able to change and become more like Christ Jesus. Don't rob yourself of that hope. You know, I've, I've had conversation like this with someone that was just struggling with an, an overcoming fear. Just always falling into fear over and over again. And this person was asking me, well, you know, is, do I just have a disease? Is this something I just can't help? It's like, no, you have a habit of sinful thinking that you have been practicing for years and years and years. But the scriptures have answers and there is hope. Don't give up hope. You have hope to be able to become more like Christ Jesus. There is hope for change. And we have to be careful, too, that we don't use those labels to excuse sinful behavior. The Bible talks about behavior. It doesn't categorize people based on their personalities or their genetics, but it talks about behavior, doesn't it? And there is sinful behavior and there is righteous behavior. Don't try and justify sinful behavior with whatever reason. We are to strive for the standard of righteousness. Okay. 
also thinking about the hope for change, let's consider this, guys, that while we're never fully out of favor with God, we can increase in God's fatherly favor. Is that a good thing? What am I talking about? The Christian life isn't static. It's not like we're just chunk, we're done. We're there, and it doesn't matter what we do, we can't be more pleasing in God's eyes in any way, shape, or form. Now, but we've got to be careful with this, so let's talk about a couple of things. We are always, if we are in Christ, positionally in favor with God. Our position is secure. What are the things that we learned about from Ephesians chapter 1? We are elect. We are holy. We are blameless. We are accepted. We are adopted. We are sealed. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. Nothing can ever change that if you are in Christ Jesus. Your position is absolutely secure. But, can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Can... God see a need to discipline us? Talks about that in Hebrews, doesn't it? That He will discipline. He will chasten. He will come and He will get us if we are His. And He will scourge us. He'll give us a whipping. Because He's displeased with the fact that we are not living for His glory and He loves us enough to come and to help us change and grow and move in the right direction. So we're always in positional favor with God. But we can increase in parental, His parental favor and we can displease Him with our sin. I mean, and, and just consider this for a moment. Is God pleased with sin? Is God ever pleased with sin? No. He's not pleased with sin. He loves us always. But He despises our sin. You know, you parents that are here can relate to that. You know, you have children and your love for your children doesn't change when they're behaving as a stinking little brat. But you may be very displeased with them at the time for their behavior. And you may bring discipline to bear upon them. Here's a consideration, and I'm not going to try and go real deep with this. It reaches a point in many theological areas where we just hit a point of worship. We just say, that's as much as I can understand. I'm just going to worship now, okay? But consider, and we read this even in our responsive reading from Luke chapter 2, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. In his human nature, Jesus increased in favor with God as he learned obedience, as he experienced temptations, and he never gave in to those temptations. And as he experienced trials, and he always performed the will of the Father. Jesus increased in favor with God. Now, was Jesus ever out of favor with God, ever? (laughs) No, Jesus never sinned. He was the absolutely holy, and is the absolutely holy, righteous Son of God. But there was a way even in which Jesus, in that position of being pure and spotless, increased in favor with God. I just simply want to use that as an analogy. Now, we're not perfect. We're not Jesus Christ. But, if you're united to Christ, 
God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he counts that as being yours. We use that word imputation, the imputed righteousness of Christ. That means God looks at you. He counts Christ's righteousness as being your righteousness. And that's part of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And so we can also grow in favor with God even though we can never be out of favor with God because our position is secure. And that, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the fact that I can, that I, by God's grace, for His glory, can be pleasing unto Him and grow in favor with Him as I live more like Christ Jesus. Okay, well let's talk a little bit now about the means of change or sanctification. The means of change. So, considering that there's a need for change, there's hope of change, and then a means of change. And let's consider how God's grace comes into this and how our works come in just a a little bit here. Look over at Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. I quoted this a little bit earlier. But let's consider it once again. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, we have this process here, don't we? We're being told to do something, to work out our salvation. And again, that's not talking about our justification. That is by grace through faith in the work of Christ alone. That is not based on what we do. This is talking about sanctification and that aspect of salvation which is a process you know have you ever heard somebody say once saved always being saved <laughs> that's it's a process it's a it's a perseverance that takes place as well as being permanently secure in Christ Jesus so but it's God's grace ultimately that unites us to Christ God's grace unites us to Christ to the power source Remember I said, you unbelievers, you're unplugged from the power source. You don't have the ability in any way, shape, or form to please God until you repent of your sins, believe in the work of Christ on your behalf, and stop trying to earn your way in favor with God or stop trying to rebel against Him. It's God's grace that unites us to Christ. But then in this process of sanctification, we have to do something. We don't just sit and wait for God to grab us or to pull our strings. You know, you've seen those marionette puppets, you know, bing, bing, bing. In the process of sanctification, we're not just sitting around waiting for God to grab a hold of us and to move us to do what is right. You see, God has empowered us if we are in Christ Jesus. And we have a responsibility now to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To know what God wants us to do. If we love Him, we'll do what? 
Keep his commandments, right? Keep his commandments. So, justification, big theological word, is monogenistic. Justification is monergism. It is God's work. Okay? Justification isn't us and God joining together in a combined effort to see that we're justified. That's uh, we're Sovereign Grace Youth Camp. <laughs> so, we believe that God does that work of salvation. Now, I'm not saying, though, that we don't, we don't believe. <laughs> you know, from our perspective, when God saves us, we have faith. And we call out upon God to forgive us of our sins. But we should realize it's because God has opened up our hearts. Remember, we talked about we are dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus said, nobody can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, and we can go down through many scriptures, and I'm not trying to defend that position here tonight. But justification is that monergism. It is that work of God alone. But when we move over to sanctification, that process becomes quite a bit more like a synergism, which is God has given us grace, and he continues to work in us and give us grace, But then we respond to that and as we do, we also are doing now what is right and that is part of the process of sanctification. Okay? God declares us to be righteous in justification based on the work of Christ Jesus and that is taken care of. But as we grow in the likeness of Christ, we have to realize that we do have a part in this. That's why we don't see anything in Scripture like Work out your justification with fear and trembling, for it is God who's working in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. But this concept of this progressive salvation, this sanctification, it is that work of God in us, so it's always by grace. But it is also us involved in that process by being obedient unto Christ Jesus. So this is a process of change here. Okay, let's stop and ask this question. Now, where do the commandments of God come into all of this? Where do the commandments of God come in? Do the commandments of God cause us to do what is right? Sorry? Okay, they teach us what is right. Yeah, what did I I quoted the words of Jesus a minute ago. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the commandments of God show us what God desires of us to show love to Him, right? So the commandments would be a lot like road signs. They can point the direction. They can tell you what to do and what not to do, but they're not the ones steering the car, right? So you know you're driving along. How many drivers do we have in here? Oh, most of you guys are driving. How many of you want to be drivers and are anticipating that and getting closer? All right. All right. You're going to see road signs, right? And you're going to have something like a negative, do not enter. When your car... If you're, if you're driving in the car, is your car going to sense that do not enter 
And no matter what you do, it's not going to let you go in there. No, you've got a, a choice in that, don't you? You're behind the wheel. It shows you what you're not supposed to do. We have commandments like that. Do not steal. Does that come to mind? Do not commit adultery. You know, you, you guys see the picture there. But the commandments don't make us do what is right. They point us, like road signs, to what should be done. To grow and to change and be more like Christ and to please God. So we've got those commandments. And they can be positive, they can be negative. You know, keep to the right, do not enter. They teach us what God wants us to do. And so there is a means of change than our sanctification. It is always it always starts with God's grace. We gotta have grace to get going in the first place. And then God is always working in us. And so we don't claim the glory for ourselves when we do what is right. We say, praise you, Lord, that you have given me the ability to do what's right. But we also need to realize, you know, uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book about finding the will of God and he entitled it, Just Do Something. (laughs) We've got to do something. We don't want to just sit around and expect God to move us or to do all kinds of... uh, supernatural things to show us what he wants us to do. We've got a supernaturally inspired book which shows us what God wants us to do. Okay. Well, now let's talk a little bit about then our method of change. And uh, now let's get back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened and being alienated, separated, estranged from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. What's the heart? We talked about that, didn't we? The heart is that inward man, right? And it could be your thinking, your desires, your motivations. Verse 19, Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness and uncleanness to work this with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard Him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation or conduct, your old way of of living, your old patterns of thinking and of life, of serving yourself, of walking according to the ways of Satan and not according to the ways of God and of Christ. You are to put that off, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. You're, You're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Your mind's to be rejuvenated. We talked about that, right? When you become a Christian, God doesn't just erase your hard drive and all your past is gone. Reboot your computer and you're fresh to go from there. No, we've still, we've still got viruses. We've got overloaded computer oftentimes and we've got to go through and we've got to clean things up. This is saying 
If we're to put off the old, we're to put on the new. Which is renewed, or which after God is created in righteousness and with true holiness. So, here's a key. And you guys know this, but the Christian life isn't just about the thou shalt not. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, is it? It's not. It is about putting off the old and cleaning out the ugly. And it is about, yes, you should not steal, but you know what? There's another side to that. Just like we had a coin here the other night, right? There's two sides to the coin. It's not enough just to focus on getting rid of the bad and sweeping the house clean, but you've got to fill it with that which is right and that which is true. So the process of change, biblically, is one of putting off these old practices and these sinful ways and then putting on the new. And that's quite a, quite a process. Any of you guys have habits? Things that you do pretty much automatically? You don't even really have to think about it? You know, we've got a lot of drivers in here. Maybe some of you are young drivers and it's not quite habit yet. You know, you get in the car and you're still pretty tense and got both hands on the wheel and the whole nine yards. Has, has somebody ever told you, hey, one of these days you're going to be cruising down the highway, you're going to have you know, just your finger and your thumb holding the bottom of the wheel, arm out the window, and not even thinking about the road, and you're like, yeah, that's never going to happen. But it'll happen. <laughs> Why? It, all beca- it becomes a habit, right? Talking about habits, tell me, which shoe do you put on first every morning? How many of you are going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to be checking it out? <laughs> which shoe do I put on? You know, if you really want to mess up, mess up a good bowler, ask them what foot they start with. <laughs> They'll be up there and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> is it this one? There was an old, uh, just, just on a side note, there was a, a guy that used to write humorous outdoor stories. His name was Havila Babcock. My dad loved Havila Babcock. And telling the story about this old mountain type feller who had this old beat up shotgun and like the handle was duct taped together. And, but this guy, this guy could shoot quail, you know, and he'd shoot, he'd shoot two at a time with this thing. And it was just automatic without even thinking. But the guy t- telling the story said I played a dirty trick on him. I asked him if he shot with his left eye closed or if he had both eyes opened or whatever it was. And he said, and the guy pulled, you know, jumped the quail and pulled up a shot and missed. And he's like, well, doggone, you know. And, and, then, and then this guy hears in the distance, you know, as he's walking away, pow, pow, well, doggone. <laughs> We find that we have habits, right? And we don't even think about it. We don't even realize what we're doing. Can it be that way with sin? Can we have habits of sin? Have you ever been there? And it's like you, it's like you just wake up and you realize that you're in the middle of a sinful thought or a sinful pattern of thinking. And you're like, how in the world did I get there? You know, we have this old man, this old way of living, our old conduct. And you know what? Even as Christians, if we're not 
vigilant, we can develop sinful patterns and habits. And so we are supposed to be vigilant. But with this process of change, we need to learn how to identify that sinful thinking. But it's not enough just to stop our wrong thinking and wrong actions. We have to replace that with what's right. And we're going to go through and look in a moment. There are all types of things in the scripture where we see that put off and put on. Where it tells us the thing that we're supposed to stop doing, but then it tells us the flip side and what we're supposed to do that is right for the glory of God. And we're, we're going to look at some of those in just a moment. But we're very much creatures of, of habit. Um, you know, I mentioned talking to somebody that was just having trouble with fear. And it's just, it's an automatic thing. It's an automatic thing. You know, just like uh, for us, you know, getting up in the morning, you know, we don't have to think about how we're going to put our shoes on and walk through every single step of that and getting dressed and ready in the morning. It's just habit, right? We just get up and we just do it. Well, that's the way it is oftentimes with sin. And what do we do with that? We've got to learn to identify that. And we've got to learn how to put it off and how to put on that which is right. And you know what? It may literally mean, if, if you have a, a pattern of simple thinking, let's use our thinking as an example. We could use uh, fear or worry as an example. If you have a pattern of simple worry, you may literally, when you start looking into your heart and seeking by God's grace to put off that pattern and put on something new and you start really seeing the habit that you've fallen into, you may literally find yourself 60, 70, 100 times a day catching yourself in the middle of that and having to put off the old and put on the new and and fill it with those righteous thoughts, those things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. You know, filling your mind with those things instead of being overcome with fear and worry about what could happen for tomorrow. I've, I've been there. I've been there. I've, I've had those anxious feelings. And then when I started really analyzing myself and figuring out what was going on and paying close attention, literally finding myself 20, 30 times a day, realizing, you know what, I just started to automatically slip into that again. And then, by God's grace, trying to say, I need to put off the old man now and put on the new. Put off the old and put on the new. Well, with our habits and the nature of our habits, what did Jesus say about if your right eye offends you? Pluck it out. Now, was he talking literally that that's, you're supposed to literally reach in and pop it out? No. <laughs> you pop that one out and then you have to pop the other one out and then you still have your mind and your sinful thinking and you can still lust, Right? But what was, he, what was he talking about? He was using hyperbole. It's not hyperbole. It looks like that. Yeah. He was using hyperbole. It was an intentional exaggeration to make a point. So what was he saying, though? He was saying you have to take extreme measures to get rid of these sinful patterns and to avoid this sinfulness. It means you're going to have to work at that. Any of you seen the movie Fireproof? The guy that was struggling with lust, what did he do with his computer? (laughs) He took it out with a baseball bat. And there's his neighbor, you know, 
that neighbor that's always looking at him and <laughs> good morning, whatever it was. You know, what was he doing? He was plucking his eye out. There was something that was offensive there. He knew as long as that computer was in the house that for him that was going to be too strong a temptation and he was going to take extreme measures to put off and put on and to not fuel the fire. We can think of some biblical examples. Here's doing it wrong. David with Bathsheba. He saw her, didn't he? Did he instantly flee? What did he do? He fueled the fire. And he went and asked questions about who she was. But give me a good example of somebody that did the opposite of David. Joseph. He didn't fuel the fire, did he? He fled. He didn't stick around to work harder to try and convince Potiphar's wife that what she was doing was inappropriate, whatever. What did they do? I mean, he reached the point where he just turned and he literally ran, didn't he? There are times that we have to do that as we're working on this process of becoming more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider the idea of discipline here for a moment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. As we're considering putting off the old man, putting on the new, developing new patterns, new habits. And remember, remember guys, don't forget this, there's hope in sanctification and change because we're in Christ Jesus. I mean, maybe, maybe right now you were thinking, wow, you know, I, yeah, I've got this pattern, this habit of sin, whatever it is. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's worry, maybe it's lust, and you find yourself in it, and you're battling, and you're struggling. There is hope that you can develop a new pattern of righteousness. But it's going to take time, it's going to take work, it's going to take vigilance, it's going to take discipline. We're going to talk about that. And don't forget also the body of Christ. You know, the one another passages in Scripture, I mentioned that in another message Go through some time with a concordance and look up that phrase, one another. See how many times you find that in the scriptures. Healing takes place in the body of Christ. As we tell people about our needs and we ask for prayer and we ask for accountability and people who God is giving grace to grow and change like us can come alongside us and they can help us. And that takes place in your churches. Most of you guys here, if not all of you, are from churches inside that church where people can work with you and and help you and encourage you to be more like Christ and come alongside you. Okay, I'll stop preaching and get to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is reminding Timothy, young Timothy, of some things that he needs to know so he can live a life of godliness and overcome some of the things that he was falling into and dealing with. And then he tells Timothy, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto you have also attained. But, he says, refuse profane and old wives' fables. 
these old stories of no profit, these things that you shouldn't be focused your time on that are not the truth. Exercise yourself rather, though, unto godliness. Notice that word exercise there. That's, in the Greek language, that's the word gymnazo. You hear the word gym in there? So, you kind of get the picture? They had gymnasiums in that day where people would go in to work out. And you think about an athlete. You know, we've got athletes here. And you know that it takes a lot of diligent discipline to be a good athlete and to be fit and to be able to perform well in your sport. It's the same with godliness. It takes discipline. It's what we're talking about when we talk about this process of change and of growing to be more like Christ. We're to be disciplined. We're to be devoted. Just like a good athlete. Remember, uh, we talked about chariots of fire. And Eric Liddell, he was disciplined to train himself for the Olympic Games. And we saw also, though, that he didn't make that an idol because he wouldn't violate his conscience when they asked him to do something that he believed would have been sinful for him from the Word of God. But we're to discipline ourselves unto godliness. Look also over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What does the Apostle Paul say here? In 1 Corinthians 9. And we'll start with verse 24, but consider this for just a moment as we're thinking about this. Would you describe yourself as a disciplined person? Would you say that you are disciplined in godliness? That you are an athlete in godliness? Or would you say, well, you know, I'm just, I just kind of coast through. Kind of a couch potato Christian. The goal is for the glory of God, by the grace of God, to be disciplined in godliness. And the Apostle Paul gives us himself as an example here. Just a little side note. Have any of you ever found it pretty incredible that the Apostle Paul would tell people he was writing to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, do what I do? You know what that does for us? When we look at the times when he tells us about himself in these inspired writings, then we can look at his example also. I mean, it was the Holy Spirit working through him, inspiring him to say, do as I do. Now, we probably need to be a little careful looking at the historical narratives like in Acts. You know, because was Paul perfect? Was he Jesus Christ? No, he was not. But when we're looking at places where he's giving commandments or giving instructions and he brings himself in as an example, Christ is our ultimate example. He's the only God-man. But God has given us another man as an example in the Apostle Paul. So here we have an example here of something the Apostle Paul tells us. Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but one receives the prize? It wasn't a postmodern society. Everybody wins. 
so then that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is tempered. He's in control of discipline in all things. Now they do it to attain a corruptible or a perishable crown, but we for an incorruptible crown. He says, I therefore run this way, not with uncertainty. I fight not as one that beats the air. So he's using picture here both of a runner running a race and also of a boxer. You know, have you ever seen a boxing match where one guy just can't connect, you know, and he's just swinging and hitting the air? He's saying, I am not fighting in this way. He says, but I keep my body under subjection. I, I control my body. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. When he says he brings his body into subjection, that is talking, also it's talking about his thinking, it's talking about his whole self. And literally in the Greek when it says he brings it into subjection, it's saying I buffet my body, I give myself a black eye, the word in the Greek language can even refer to. So what's he saying? He's saying I beat my wrong sinful desires into subjection. So that when I preach to others, I don't get disqualified in the end. He's saying, you know what? I realize that I can think I'm a Christian all my life and I can even stand up and preach the gospel to people and not ultimately be saved and be disqualified in the end. So he realized the need for discipline and he took extreme measures to see that he wasn't a couch potato Christian, but he was disciplining himself unto godliness. Well, let's consider a couple put-off, put-ons, and we're just going to read these together. There's that principle. And this one's huge. If you start looking for this, you know, maybe in uh, your reading time and rest time, pick up your Bible and turn to a book like Ephesians and start going through it and start seeing how many places you can find this idea of putting off something and then putting on something else. So it'll talk about a negative thing and it'll say something to the effect of put this off or don't do this, but then it'll give you the positive side of it and say here's what you're to do in return. Here's what you're to replace it with. This is throughout the scripture. This is a tool that God has given us to help us become disciplined in godliness and to grow to be more like Christ, the one who died so that we can be pleasing unto God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Let's look at a few things just in Ephesians 4. We'll see several of them right here. Ephesians chapter 4. And... Uh, Look at verse 25. We read verses 17 down through 24, which talks about putting off our old conduct, our old ways, our old man, and putting on the new. Now we see some specific examples of that here. That was the big general principle. Now we got the specific examples coming up. What's the first one there? What's the put off in verse 25? Help me out with this. Lying. Okay, but is it enough to tell somebody... Stop lying. Just stop lying. Just quit it. Just stop lying. And then they stop. 
Have they done enough? What's the put on in this passage? It's speaking the truth with his neighbor. For we are members, I remember I said that phrase, one another or one of another. There we go, right there. Why do we speak the truth? We're members of one another. And we're members of the body of Christ. Christ is the one who is always truthful. And we're not to hurt one another by lying to one another. But we're to speak truth and encourage each other in the truth. Okay, what's, what's the next one? Verse 26. What are we supposed to put off? Okay. Sinful anger. Let not the sun go down in your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Well, that one doesn't have to put off, put on quite as much as some of these other ones. So, I'm going to focus in on that verse, though. We're going to do a whole lesson on anger. But uh, we could go to other passages that would help us with that. The idea of putting off vengeance, the sinful anger. Uh, Romans chapter 12 would be a good one for that. You know, it's not enough. We're supposed to repay evil with good. So we're supposed to do good to those who do evil to us rather than being sinfully angry with them. Okay, well, let's jump, let's jump down for a minute. Then uh, verse 28 would be the next more specific put off, put on. Okay, put off stealing. But what's supposed to be done on the fifth side? What's the put on here? Yeah, working, laboring, working with the hands. For what purpose? So he can give to the ones that are in need. So you see that? It's not just enough to stop being a thief. And how do you know if someone really has stopped being a thief? Jay Adams brings that out in one of his books on biblical counseling. He, I think there was a little joke involved. You know, when is a door not a door? What's the answer to that? Anybody know that? When it's a jar. When it's a jar. You know, ha ha, yeah. <laughs> but when's a door not a door? When it's something else. When is a thief no longer a thief? When it's a giver. When he's a giver, when he's something else. Otherwise, I think Adams puts it this way, you may just be a thief in between jobs. <laughs> right? So, so what is it? It's putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. Uh, look at verse 29 there. What are we supposed to put off? Unwholesome words. Corrupt communication. What are we supposed to put on? Words to build up other people. You know, this is so important, isn't it? You know, some of you here have kids. Some of you will have kids. It's so important, not just to teach our kids the put-off part of it, and not just say, stop lying and get them to stop lying. We've got to emphasize speaking the truth. It's not enough just to teach them, well, stop saying hurtful things to your brother. They need to be taught from the heart and it's only God that can change the heart but we need to be talking to him about what's going on in the heart that you you should want to and you need to for the glory of Jesus because Jesus wants you to to not only stop saying hurtful things to your brother you need to find good things and helpful things to talk to him about and you need to help him and encourage him so important so important in our in our counseling people, encouraging people from the word in our own lives. 
to put off and put on righteously. Look down at uh, verse 31 and one more here. Chapter 4, 31 and 32. What are we supposed to put off here? We've got a pretty good list, don't we? And it deals with our it deals with our speech, and it deals with the inward things of the heart, and how we act toward other people. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is even brawling, <laughs> evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. But what's to put on? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. And then what do we see there as the example? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Wow. I mean, you see how, and this was brought out in one of the group sessions, it's just fantastic. The gospel isn't just for the lost, we should be focused, we should be gospel saturated people. We should always be thinking about what Christ has done so that we are forgiven. And if we are focused in on that, and if we are floored with the magnitude of what Christ has done for us, then this process of putting off and putting on is going to be so much easier. It's going to naturally flow out of who we are. That gratitude for Christ. I mean, think about what He did for you. Think about the fact that He gave up that position of glory. And that He came down to a world and became a creature. And you know what? We, we like to try and really sanctify the incarnation and take all the messiness out of it sometimes. And uh, maybe it's a little poetic license in the hymn. You know, I'm not ultra dogmatic about this, but away in a manger, no crib for bed. You know, the little Lord Jesus, it says, no crying He makes. Maybe that's trying to clean up the incarnation a little bit too much. Jesus was a baby. You know what he did when he came out of the womb? What do babies do? They bellow. Now, he didn't do it because of sin. But, you know what? He had diapers and his mom had to change his diapers. Do we think that Jesus could never become ill? I watched a good lesson by uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem. He's reasoning this way. He said, you know what? I reason, he said, from the fact that they drove nails through the hands of Jesus and nailed him to the cross. And they put pierced, they pierced his side. He said, so I reason that he had a body that could be affected like a virus just like any other human body. You know what? Jesus probably had colds growing up as a kid. <laughs> Think about that whole process of the incarnation. Think about the fact, if you were in Him, He did all of that. He gave up that glory and He became that so that He could relate to you. We have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And then He went to the cross and He bore the anger of God upon sin so that you will never feel the wrath of God and be condemned and be forsaken by God. And so, if you are tempted to be bitter towards someone or angry towards someone or speak evil towards them, 
Remember the work of Christ on your behalf and that you have been forgiven. And then let that motivate you, inspire you to then be tender-hearted, forgiving one another because He has forgiven us. So, with this process of change then, looking to our Lord Jesus, seeking by His grace to become disciplined, and take with you that concept, and I'm sure you've, you've heard your pastors preach on this, putting off the old man, putting on the new. And let that give you hope that you can grow and you can change if you're in Christ Jesus. Okay, what's, uh, what's our time, Tim? Get all the time you want. <laughs> let's uh, let's open it up. You know, let's talk about the last three lessons. If you've got questions, you know that I might be able to help you with. If I'm not certain, I've got other pastors in the audience, so I'll do a little tag team deal. And and uh, if if you guys are willing, you know, we'll uh, go that route. But but uh, in particular, let's let's probably focus in on the the three lessons that we've looked at. Uh, if you've got other questions for any of the pastors or counselors here, you know, we're here for you guys. But uh, let's start off at least. Let's focus in on, do you have any questions about our identity in Christ that we've talked about? About, you know, this pattern of change we talked about tonight, about the desires of the heart? Uh, any, anybody have anything they want us to discuss? Okay. I've either done a really good job in presenting it or everybody's like, don't give this guy an opportunity to keep speaking. <laughs> Long-winded preacher boy up here. Ah, ah that's a good question. Um, scripturally speaking, no. It's not wrong to doubt your salvation. As a matter of fact, you may have good cause at times to do so. Uh, what does the Apostle Paul say about examining the heart? And let's see if I can uh, find the specific passage. I want to turn us, turn us to it here. If somebody has the reference of the one I'm looking for. Pardon? Yes. Uh, I was in chapter 12. I hadn't uh, got to 13 yet. Thank you. 13.5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates. So, the Apostle Paul says here, Examine yourselves. Look inward to see whether you're even in the faith. Now, what if you look inward and you don't see evidence in your life that you are in the faith? Well, that would be good cause for saying, you know what? I may not be. <laughs> Maybe I should question this right now. And uh, if you consider the, the book of First John, there are many things in the book of First John that would be there as evidences of a true believer. Jesus said... And we looked at this the other night that you know, a good tree is going to bear good fruit, right? You go through First John and you have many statements like 
loving God and keeping His commandments. You know, if you say that you love God but don't keep His commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So it goes through and it gives, you know, many things to look inward. And if you say, hey, you know what? I, I just never love the brother. I never love other believers in Christ Jesus. I think I'm always just focused on self. That would be an opportunity to examine your heart and say, you know what? I need to confess this and I may not even be in the faith truly. Yeah, Brother Tom. diligence to make calling election sure now could there be someone who truly is a believer but who is always doubting (laughs) and they get so consumed with that doubt that it becomes unprofitable in their life but yet they truly are in Christ Jesus yeah I, I think that that could definitely happen and so there again being part of a body of Christ the body of Christ you know, being in the church, uh, I had someone that I was speaking to about spiritual issues, and he was pointing out to me that he said, "You know what? I, I don't even know if I'm saved." And he said, "You know, I think one of the reasons is that I have refused to go to church and be around people who can witness the fruit that's in my life and help encourage me with, yeah, you're behaving in a godly way here. No, you're not here." You know, so in in his case, he had totally isolated himself from wise people who could give him encouragement from the Word and help him understand if he was doing what God required or not doing, and help him walk through some of those things. So, again, very important to you know be a part of the body of Christ and be in a, a church where people are bearing testimony to you to whether or not you are making your calling and election sure. Okay, that's a very good question. Daniel, did you um, want to answer? I was thinking about your third point on idols and how to identify idols. And this would be more specifically for Christians. Um, but you said that in number three, of what do I spend most of my thoughts and actions thinking about? Could you get some insight on? I find in my own life, sometimes if I'm not doing something that you kind of view as spiritual, you kind of feel like you're doing the wrong thing. Uh-huh. How do you not be bound? I mean, it, it's not binding. But, you know, you want to be doing things that are, you know, you're learning more spiritual things, but sometimes you kind of need time for your brain to rest. You know? So how do you, how do you balance your third point with not feeling like you're doing something you shouldn't be doing because it's not kind of Right. Well, I, I think I think first of all that we have to be careful and not make false dichotomies, make false categories. 
can say, this is my this is my spiritual life over here, but these things don't connect to my spiritual life at all. Okay? As believers, remember we looked at whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking is an everyday, mundane type of thing. So, a question that we can ask, this one has been very helpful to me, to ask myself when I'm wondering, well, am I just wasting time here? Is... How does this profit the kingdom? You know, am I seeking the kingdom of God in this right now? And, you know what? I may say, yeah, you know, going and taking a nap here in the middle of the day, just laying down for an hour and just resting, that's very much seeking the kingdom of God right now. Because I got three hours of sleep last night. I'm dead on my feet. I can barely think. I've got to preach in the morning. And... I can use this rest and that's going to help recharge me to be able to do what God has called me to do right now. And, you know, God even has given patterns of rest, you know, in the scriptures. And regardless what somebody's position is ultimately on the Sabbath day, uh, that principle of rest and that we as human beings need time to rest and recharge. And there can be other so when when we talked about identifying idols and the question presented was what do we spend the bulk of our free time thoughts and activities on? The question is do every time every single time we get a speck of free time or a free moment then we're thinking about golf and we're playing golf. And that's all we're thinking about, and that's all we're doing. It's not golf because, you know what, this is a good activity, and I'm recharging, and maybe I'm going with a brother in Christ, and we can talk a little bit about the things of the Lord while we're on the golf course. Uh, But it's just my life is consumed with golf, and I'm all about golf. Uh, I mentioned, you know, that I got consumed. uh, It would have been... 20, 21 years old with running and with fitness. And literally, there, weren't, there wasn't five minutes in a day that it was going by that I wasn't thinking about my next workout. So there I knew I had an, an idol when the Lord snapped me out of it. He kicked me in both knees and, and uh, knocked me down and by His grace didn't allow me to continue with that. But is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, and uh, that was one of our idol identifiers last night. That was the first one on the list. Yeah, do I want this so much? What do I want so much that I will sin to get it, or sin if I don't get it? So you know, we could put that together with that idea of my thoughts and my time. And, you know, is this, is this something that I'm going to get and do and have at all costs? Or I'm going to try and avoid at all costs? So, yeah, very, very true. Yes? It's like, in your case, God's given you the ability to run. Like, in the town, you're, one of your talents is running. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, you can. 
And it, but it depends how you're thinking about it, and it depends why you're doing it. You know, what's, what is the main desire in your heart and your main motivation? Remember we talked last night, what's that supposed to be for everything that we do? It's to bring glory to God. That means to exalt His worthiness and His glory and to treat Him with significance. So, if God has given that, us that ability and that gift, then it's not sinful and it's even good if, if we have the opportunity to use that for His glory. The question is, why are we doing it? And then, where are we pointing the finger of praise to when we're done with it? Somebody can give fantastic glory to God. I mean, there are very few professional athletes out there that don't point the finger of glory back at themselves. I mean, they may, you know, yeah, my teammates, they helped me out with this and all this and that, but, you know, when they really start digging deep and you start hearing these interviews, there are a lot of guys out there. I mean, they're just flat arrogant, aren't they? And it just seeps out of them. So, a Christian athlete who is diligent and pursues the sport and does focus in on it, but then points the finger of glory to God is one that stands out from the crowd. And so they, like uh, like Eric Liddell was one of those when we talked about him. Yes? Uh, how can you tell when you come to the point of uh, being so burdened by your sin and the guilt of that, that it's actually sinful guilt because you realize that you're not trusting in your Right, right. Well, you know, in considering that, and somebody can definitely be so burdened with guilt and looking inward at themselves all the time, you know, first of all, what's the right thing to do? And we're going to have an entire lesson on guilt, and that is, for every, I've heard it said this way, for every one look we take at ourselves, we take ten looks at the cross. Right? So we focus on Christ and what He has done and we accept the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But how do we know when we reach a point where we're not doing that? You know, we've talked about the Scriptures say so often one another. One another. One way we could we could realize we've crossed a line is is that affecting our ability to serve others well in the body of Christ. I mean, are we are we literally taking ourselves down? Let's look over at uh, at the Psalms for a moment. Psalm thirty two. Psalm thirty two. We have a praise here at the beginning. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not or doesn't count his iniquity against him. 
and in whose spirit there is no guile or deceit. It says, when I kept silence, my bones grew old through my roaring all the day long. He's in turmoil inwardly. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto you. Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, let's stop there for just a moment. We see here David, and this was probably, he's speaking about probably the fact that he had not confessed his sin even with Bathsheba and Uriah, that whole situation unto God. And that God's hand was upon him, and literally he's having physical responses to that. He's groaning, he's in turmoil within, and it even sounds like in the terminology here, his body was aching and he was drained of his vitality. It would look very similar to a depression today. And then he says he acknowledged his sin and confessed that. But now let's go on and let's talk about what happened then when he came to the understanding of forgiveness and how we could know if we're crossing over into looking too much at our guilt and at our sin. For this cause, everyone that is godly Pray unto you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come near unto him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall compass me about with songs of deliverance. Now notice this. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. Now he switched here. He's not talking about God, is he? What is he doing? He is now turning and out his gaze outward to other people around him and he's beginning to instruct them about the way that they should go and the way that they, we could probably even say from the context, one of that, those things would be when he begins to say, don't be like the horse or the mule, which are stubborn and no understanding. In one sense, he's probably saying, don't do what I did. Don't behave like I did by not confessing my guilt and trusting in God's forgiveness. I will instruct you, teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you in my eye. Don't be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. Um, one symptom of being consumed too much with that guilt and not trusting in forgiveness, which is in Christ Jesus, would be that your ability and your desire and your communication toward others about God and what He has done for you is being affected by you being consumed by this guilt. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, you know, it talks about there's a peace that passes all understanding when you're not anxious constantly. You know, but if you're trusting God for salvation... You know, when people are anxious or they're consumed with their guilt, you can have a physical response even. It can destroy your body. It can keep you from joyfully communicating the truth of who God is and what He has done to others. If you start seeing those things happening, then you should be very, very wary that, you know what, I'm going too deep inside and not focused on Christ and focused on those around me and being of service to the body of Christ. Does that, does that help? And I mean, there would probably be many other symptoms of 
well now I've gone too far, but the general admonition is, whereas we should be concerned about our sin, and we should be examining our own hearts to see if we're in the faith, and we will find times that we're guilty and we should be broken, what does a godly sorrow lead unto? It leads unto repentance. It doesn't just stay as a sorrow that's consuming all the time, but it leads to a change. It leads to repentance. And that leads then to moving on and growing and reaching out to encourage others. Okay, let's, uh, let's take one more question. Anyone has another? It's His grace. Even when after we're His, we're able to put off and put on because we always recognize, you know what, He made me alive and gave me the ability to do any of this in the first place. And yes, He does continue to work in us as well, but as we saw from Philippians chapter 2, but, um, but it is something that we are involved in. So we never, we never boast in ourselves. And that's where avoiding it as a fleshly thing, you know, this is this is me and, you know, look at how well I'm disciplined and all the things I put off and put on. But at the same time, no, it's not it's not necessarily a prideful or a fleshly thing to realize, you know what, I've got something that I've got to do. You know, it it comes it comes in that way with salvation. You know, I, I say it all the time, but you know, you gotta believe something to be a Christian. You know, Christians have certain beliefs. And there are certain things in the scriptures that say, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. It's evidence that you're not saved. And with sanctification, you know, there are certain things that 
we do. And it's that putting off and putting on for the glory of God. Okay. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. I'll pray for here and then uh, turn it over to Brother Tim. Thank you for your grace, Father, in making us alive spiritually, for working in us to help make us willing and equipping us to do your good pleasure. And I pray, Father, that you'll continue to work in each person that is here. Those that are yours, I pray that you'll continue to Help them to put off the old and put on the new and to become disciplined in righteousness and conform to the image of Christ. And if there are any here who are not yours, I pray that you would work in them, Father. And that they would see their need of you and desire to follow after Christ and to be able to please you. I ask that you'll be with us through the rest of the week, dear God, and that you'll strengthen us spiritually through this week, that you'll give us grace and mercy, that you'll watch over us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.